This program is brought to you by P1 Australia Racing Components, the designer of the oil heat mats for dry sump tank applications. Find out more about the truths on engine oil heating at p1australia.com. You love supercars and keeping up to speed sometimes means hitting the rev limiter? Welcome to the Gates Rev Limiter Podcast. After each round, we unpack what happened. Join Andrew Clark. We've paused a fraction and got it right, and they probably still would have won the race. I mean, and yours truly, Neville Wilkinson. These are the heady days when Ford was spending mega bucks for all the action, all the controversy, and sometimes a little emotion. The Gates Rev Limited Supercars Podcast. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, or where you listen to them. Thunder Media. Hi, I'm Chaz Mostert. Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. And you're listening to Inside Supercars. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. On this episode of Inside Supercars, championship winning engineer James McCabe joins Tony Whitlock to talk about sprint cars and supercars, some of the similarities and some of the differences. They put on these fantastic events. They'll pack a venue like Warnable to the point where it's a lockout, three nights in a row, and it's all about open wheel racing. You know, whereas circuit racing, it's all about sedans, V8 supercars suck up whatever mainstream media there is. And it's, I would argue that it's possibly not as popular, certainly with the diehard fans of each element, you know? It's supercars versus sprint cars today on Inside Supercars. And it starts now. Welcome to Inside Supercars, Tony Whitlock and Craig Ravel, and we're joined by a man who's been around motor racing for the most part of his life, that being James McCabe, a race engineer by trade and a motor racing enthusiast by occupation. Welcome, James, back to the show. No, thanks for having me back, Tony. Well, we both had an interesting time down at Warnable. It was an extraordinary event for a whole bunch of different reasons. I'm not used to sort of these 12-hour days or whatever at racetracks. I suppose I am, really. What am I saying? Maybe I wasn't 70 when I was doing it before. You should be. Yeah. <laughs> Possibly not. 2am. Possibly the, the days, not, they don't include the nights. Yes, yes. 2am finishes for a consecutive sort of night. Or, no, there wasn't consecutive nights. It was a, a Friday and a Sunday night. But they're pretty big nights in... Uh, anyone's language, and particularly, I imagine, for every competitor at Warnable. You've been seeing Warnable and classics, as, you, as they're called, for, for many years, though. Tell us a little bit about your history. Oh, look, I was just, um, as a kid growing up, I was into anything sort of car-orientated, and uh, my father had had a, quite a history in, um, well, firstly in rallying and then in preparing cars for speedway racing. He used to do uh, TQ midgets, which... Back in those days, which I guess was the 50s, were reasonably popular around our area. Um, so as we, as I grew up in Hamilton, and as we grew older, we we tended to have, you know, it was almost a, a tradition thing where people that live in Hamilton holiday in Port Ferry and go to the Speedway in Warnable. Um, so we did that, and that suited me down to the ground. I absolutely loved it over there. Um, so. That was probably, that would have been the early 70s, so I was sort of 8, 10 years old. Um, and, yeah, we were there for the very first Sprint Car Classic, or 
Grand Annual Classic. It wasn't they weren't sprint cars then; they were still super modifieds. Um, and yeah, so we were there. We saw Zeke Agars win the first one with his six-cylinder Holden-powered car. So um, that's probably the last time a six-cylinder car won any major sprint car feature in this country or any country for that matter. So um, yeah, I remember it well. We used to. Uh, I was a massive fan of Bill Wigsell from uh, Murray Bridge. Used to come over and run at Warnable and you know, Portland Avalon quite a bit. Um, yeah, so that's that's what I was doing. And um, that time I started uh, getting involved in rallying and circuit racing as well. So I was servicing rally cars and navigating in them for I did that for twenty years. And um, Actually, I only stopped navigating when I went motor racing professionally into about 2001. Um, and I was also involved in preparing uh, a mini sports sedan for a local guy. And he, he ran that quite successfully. And there was another guy there who had a clubman sports car. So we were involved in the freighter series in the mid to late 70s with that. Now, you've been involved in motorsport as a, a race engineer principally. That's your occupation. That's correct. But you've done a variety of things, from from open wheelers through Porsche, through supercars, development series versions of supercars, yep. a vast array from Brad Jones and Brytech and Greg Murphy Racing, uh, Sharon Motorsport with Porsches and Minis. You, you've seen a lot of those categories evolve and become more professional, certainly um, spending more money. Yeah. Um, maybe not more professional, but in some cases. Um, can you talk maybe about the differences you've seen the way sprint cars? Because one of the things that impressed me so much at the weekend, and it was my first real time interviewing a lot of different people in it, and it was from both the amateurs who are trying to be professional to the professionals like James McFadden and Brooke Tatnell, who's been there living for, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years more. Yeah, absolutely. And incredible professionalism of these people, as good as anyone you could present in supercars. Yeah, for sure, for sure. It's um, Sprint car racing in general is very intense. Like, they've got a short season, uh, so they do a lot of events over a short period of time. Um, they've got to, uh, They've got to keep, parts up to the cars and in some cases cars up to drivers so um, you know they, they've each of the professional teams even just an amateur guy got two cars I was talking to him over the weekend and you know they were looking around to buy a chassis and ended up buying a, a complete car and engine and what have you uh, and the thought was they'd probably sell that engine off but the reality was the car was more valuable to them with an engine in it um, so yeah, look, it's it's yeah, very it's intense is what I would say about it. Um, whereas the V8 supercars, you get quite a bit of turnaround time generally. Like okay, sometimes you do back to back, but they're more the exception than the rule. And and even then, you've got a full week before between races. Like whereas the spring cars over the weekend did five nights, basically in a row. So. Um, yeah, I think yeah, you know, the principal difference is just the length of the season and the amount of driving you're trying to do. And the other thing with the with the spring cars is they're trying to cover um, at least all of the east coast from a from a single base. So that's uh, 
that gives them a lot of miles on the road to do as well, to go you know, Queensland to Warrnambool, you know, back to Toowoomba or whatever. So, uh, yeah, but in terms of professionalism and, you know, the, the vehicles that they, you know, the trucks and that on the road, you know, they're very much of a muchness, I would have said. Um, you know, the trucks, all the Speedway trucks are running damper dynos and, um, you know, like I said, they've got spare cars in them, they've got spare wings. Uh, they run a lot of shock absorbers, so different valving, is, they simply change the shock out. So um, there's a, a large stock of that sort of thing that's kept in the truck. Um, you know, whereas a V8 supercar, you're typically just adjust the shock absorber or, or do a revalve or whatever. These guys have got stocks that uh, all different valving and they swap them around on the car. Um, so, you know, the, the startup costs quite high to a sprint car, I guess. The actual car itself isn't that expensive with the exception of the engine. But, um, yeah, there's sort of chocolate cheese between the build cost of a V8 supercar versus the build cost of a sprint car, for example. And the engine cost, as you say, is probably quite almost equivalent uh, across the two categories because, you know, one's a 410 cubic inch and 900 horsepower and the other one's a 5 litre and about 600 plus. The car engine is a little cheaper, but there's not a lot in it. I think they're getting closer and closer all the time to the V8 supercar engine costs. Yeah, and of course it all changes yet again with Gen 3. Absolutely. Where... Uh, you know, two engine suppliers for the category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well, that remains to be seen how that, how that works, I guess. Be interesting. I saw firsthand on Sunday night, uh, probably about 8, 9 o'clock, when uh, Cam Waters had, was uh, running well, had got himself uh, into uh, the A-Main on uh, Sunday night. Um, and uh, unfortunately, another competitor um, had slowed dramatically. Something had broken on his car and Cam wasn't able to stop hit the back of that car. Uh, this was in the B main, the second B main. Yep, and as a result, um, massive damage on Cam's car. And I, and I watched on Sunday night as the crew, not just the crew on the number six uh, monster car, but crews from probably five, six or more teams all hooking to get that competitor back on the track, which they did do. Mm-hmm. They only had, you know, moments to spare. It reminded me, in fact, of that time I think it was at Sandown when Tom Randall, no, it was Adelaide when Tom Randall missed qualifying the top 10 shootout. Oh, yes. Yep. You know, there was, it was something like 22 seconds that Randall missed getting out in pit lane. Yeah. And I thought there's a dramatic contrast in the way in which the organisation, the, the body that runs the sport says, no, we want that competitor out there. Yep. In, in sprint cars, yes, that's what we want. We want the competitor out in track. Yep. And which is the American way of doing things. What do we do? What do we need to do to get this guy back on the track? Whereas in the FIA and the the, the organisation that's run under their rules, they are totally dogmatic. No, that's the cutoff. You can't make it. You can't do it. No, can't do it. Yep. And it's just really silly because, you know, I, I found it was a, quite a contrast in styles between the two. And you know, unfortunately, Cam only a short time afterwards. Either something else got bent or they didn't pick something that that had been bent and he wasn't able to finish our main. But Cam did very well because he made about nine or ten places in that B main to get into the A main. And uh, that was a tremendous job. Um, several people have spoken to me about Cam's development over the last year or so 
and particularly his race in his crew chief, um, Lindsay Trotter, the way in which Cam has developed. Um, coming from road racing, it's obviously a totally different uh, demand, but Cam at least had a leg up in that his father used to race super, super saloons, so he had been around Speedway. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think, I think Cam's had a few Speedway drives in sedans, and his brother obviously got a very good one now, and he, I'm sure Cam has a drive of that from time to time. Um, it's interesting that you uh, highlight that incident because um, you know, whilst Cam was flat out fixing his car, so too was um, Grant Anderson's crew and assorted other teams that were uh, pushing there. And um, it was a extremely controversial decision uh, that was probably totally incorrect, in fact. But um, it certainly uh, stirred quite a bit of fire in the crowd, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, I think it was, it was a very disappointing, very disappointing outcome. But uh, they that was the decision they made, rightly or wrongly, and uh, there's a lot of that in Speedway, you'd have to say. You're not going to like every decision that gets made, that's for sure. While you haven't worked in in sprint cars as such, um, as a, an engineer or a crew chief, can you relate some of the things? I, I did some uh, super sedan work in Queensland when I was up there with basically um, helping a guy to get his head around using adjustable shock absorbers for the first time. And that was very interesting for both of us, actually. I learned a lot from listening to his questions and. Uh, he learned enough about shock absorbers to build himself a business. So, yeah, and good luck to him. Yeah, it's it's uh, good to see that that knowledge going to good use. But yeah, I've not done sprint cars. I've watched them for, avidly for a long time, but I've never actually worked with them. I had some interesting conversations with both Kim Buswell and Lindsay Trotter, mm. and mm -hmm. oh, obviously these are both top line. Particularly in the case of Kim Buswell, he's got five classics uh, as uh, uh, crew chief to his to his credit. Uh, quite a number of championships, a number of different uh, drivers he's done it with, yep. including um, Steve Lines, obviously James McFadden. He actually was going to retire, I think, until he was uh, thought to come back uh, with James. Just talking about the way in which they make the changes to the car. I mean, it's obvious that there are as many different variables in a sprint car as there would be in, say, a supercar. Uh, yeah, look, effectively, there's more, I would have to say. You know, they, they, in addition to what you run on the supercar, they're always chasing stagger and wheel offset and um, you know, some of the, the interplay between the, the front and rear wings, which actually do quite a bit of work on those cars, the interplay between those and the chassis settings. It's, it's really obvious if, you, if you're at the sprint, at a sprint car meeting and somebody uh, hasn't got a handle on what they're doing, it doesn't matter who you put in the car, a car's going to look awful. Um, so, yeah, and on top of that, of course, their track's continually changing. Um, the good side of that is it, it's at least visible, whereas, you know, the, as a track, say, rubbers up, as a, a circuit racing track rubbers up, um, it's not as, as visible or obvious as, as the changes you get at the Speedway. Um, and the other thing with the Speedway car is, you know, quite often you end up with a situation where the track surface is quite rutted and rough. 
and you you've now got to um, offset your your pure performance set, chassis settings against being able to deal with the rough surface. So, um, uh, but at the end of the day, you know the critical part both on circuit racing and in speedways being able to keep the car rotating through the middle part of the corner and you know each each discipline has their own way of doing it that's so the the rotation and the drive off the corner are still critical in both elements but the way you go about achieving those things differs between speedway and circuit racing i'd say James, one of the one of the big things, and you you're going to know much more than me, Craig. Well, one of the big things that's a, a huge difference between speedway and road racing is the time spent at the circuit, and this is one of the one of the things that is, of course, the blessing and a curse. You have an event that runs for four days in Bathurst. And you have one feature race on the Sunday, but you've got all that build up to it. We have a sprint race, if you want to use those terms, for the supercars, and you're still there for three days, even though the best you're going to get is three one and a half to one and three quarter hour races across two days of racing. Speedway is five, six hours at the track on a night. The Grand Annual is, a, is and the build-up in the Grand Annual Week is an exception because it's like a speed weeks or a speed week where it's three different tracks, but you've got the three big nights at the main event. Generally, you're going there for five hours a night and the crowd's going there for three. So that's... And that's, that's- what I was getting at before when I'm talking about the intensity of the competition and, and, and you know, driving that intensity, obviously, is that short window that you're actually operating on track. Um, so, yeah, I, I take your point. I think that's that's a that affects so much of what happens at the track as well, like just that, that limited amount of time. And the other thing is you just don't get to practice on tr- prepared tracks. You know, like we we can go to Winton for a day and drive around, and that's the same Winton you'll drive around at the next race meeting. Um, you can't do that in, on a speedway track at all. Very hard to get onto. If you get onto it, it's in the afternoon. It's yes, if exactly. you're lucky, had a half a tank of water on it, so it'll yeah, be as dusty and slick as you'll ever find it. And really, all you're going to do is start your engine up and check nothing's leaking. Yeah, you're not you're not getting that that testing value. Yeah, which which has to be a you know it's a huge hindrance to people coming into the sport from outside, and it's probably a big part of why there's so many second and third generation guys in speedways. You know, they're sort of they've sort of born into it, and that gives them a little bit of a head start in terms of their their knowledge and understanding of what's going on. That is one of the big things is, yes, the multi-generational drivers. It's a commitment from the fans of two to three hours. Mm-hmm. And I think this is harder thing when you're trying to say your sports entertainment, but then you're telling your fans that you've got to have all the practice, all the Saturday gumph and then on Sunday. And no one at the end knows who the winner is. 
Um, see, I I view the whole. It's mainly sprint car racing where I'm from. I view the whole thing as being a bit of an anomaly because effectively it's ignored by the mainstream media, and yet they put on these fantastic events. They'll pack a venue like Warnable to the point where it's a lockout three nights in a row, and it's all about open wheel racing. You know, whereas circuit racing's yeah, it's all about sedans. V8 supercars suck up whatever mainstream media there is, and it's. I would argue that it's possibly not as popular, certainly with the diehard fans of each element, you know. So it's, uh, I view it as punching well above its weight in many respects. When we see each time they make a new car, and it should be pointed out, and congratulations to you, that you won engineering the Super 3 champion in 2022. So mm-hmm. that's the base of engineering that uh, you are talking about championship winner but you have cars that progressively get more expensive Mm. and less tunable yes where we see a sprint car is becoming a more expensive car but by comparison to a supercar it's pennies in the in the dollar yeah absolutely and they are hugely tunable and most of the components are an off-the-shelf item, they're not beholden mm. to, to a, a, you know, a, a few owners a, that make a, a few components. Yeah, uh, yeah, so there's no standardised componentry as such. You buy what what you want off the shelf. There's no control parts and all that sort of thing. So I guess what we're saying there is that despite what V8 supercars are proclaiming that they're, they're trying to do, sprint cars are actually doing it and, and showing them the way to do it if, if they would... Uh, take the time to observe, perhaps, because that's, as an engineer, that's what you want. You want a car that you can work with and, and you can make a difference. Whereas if, if it's if it's all locked down, you know, you, you're getting squeezed tighter and tighter into your box. That's right. And yes, oh, it'll be more about the driver, but ultimately the harder you make the car to tune, the harder you make the car to get into the window, mm-hmm. the more it's going to be about the engineer. Yeah. Because... The driver can't drive around the very small window that it performs in. That's right. That's right. And and you know V8s, you know they take they they claim that they're taking the aero off to improve the racing and all that. That's rubbish. Yeah, and and it makes it more of a driver's car. It makes it less of a driver's car because a car that's hard to drive is a car that requires a decent driver. And a car that's got aerodynamic, you drive them through air, so they're all aerodynamic cars, but. Those cars that actually use the aero effectively highlight the driver's skills much more than a, a car that's slow and heavy and with a low sort of operating bandwidth, you know, or a high bandwidth in terms of the driver input. So, uh, yeah. And, and again, that's what a spring car is. It's a very responsive, fabulous racing machine. It's, in fact, James, the, the most very obvious sign, a difference between... And most of the road racing cars you work on are the very large wings on sprint cars. Mm. It, it gives a, a false impression as to the uh, the price of them because while they're expensive, a couple of thousand dollars, mm. the way in which they're crumpled zone for an accident is a clear demonstration of they do serve another purpose, that being a crumple zone. Oh, very much so. Like a, a 14 wingless sprint car flip or rollover is a it's a an horrific thing to watch actually like by comparison to something with the wings that slow down quite quickly 
yeah, wingless cars scare me a bit, to be honest. That has always been a, a big debate, the properties of the wing yeah. and not having a wing. And, of course, uh, you have the outlaws mm. in the United States, and the outlaws came about because USAC were running sprint cars that didn't have wings and the outlaws broke away. This is a very crude history yeah. to yeah. Uh, have the wings on and, and to have all the adjustments with them. Mm. Mm-hmm. But you have both sides of the argument. The accident, the wing is the damper for the accident, but then the wing is the reason why you're going 30, 40 miles an hour faster faster through the the corner. Yeah, okay, that's that's a valid point, of course. Yeah, look, part of my comments, possibly my my upbringing, because we didn't run wingless big sprint cars in Australia, so when I see them on TV or whatever crashing, it's, it's quite a foreign thing still to see. But you know, speed cars, midgets, whatever you want to call them, they've they've not ever run wings, to my recollection. Oh yes, they, they have. have. Thank you. Trust me, they have. Yeah, there was a there was a period, and it was brought about by Mike Raymond of mm-hmm. surprise, surprise, mm-hmm. where he couldn't run sprint cars at Liverpool. Right. So he told the speed car club, if you want to run at Liverpool, you've got to put wings yep. on. And then, of course, the promoter at Parramatta then was like, well, if you're running wings at, <laughs> at, at Liverpool, you've got to run them at Parramatta. Now, I ran a wing speed car okay. for a couple of years. Now, I could run Parramatta and not lift. Right. I couldn't okay. do that in my car, in the same car I couldn't do that yeah. and not lift. So, so that's yeah, proof that they are effective. For sure. Yeah. Oh, there's plenty of downforce yeah, on them. Absolutely. Even a even a small wing by comparison on a speed car, mm-hmm. you felt that downforce. And we didn't have a front wing. We were only putting a wing on the roll cage. Yeah, okay. So you know, but that's also a tactic. Yeah. And the tactic is the drivers know how to position their car, and, and that was an interesting difference between supercars and sprint car drivers in particular. Mm-hmm. They learn about the wing. And what the wing does to aero. Absolutely. And particularly on the bigger tracks, yep. they know if I put my car here, I'm not only taking the better line or taking the advantage, mm-hmm. I'm also putting the aero wash on my competitor. Yep. You don't often hear sprint car drivers talking about, oh, these wings are, or the, the, you know, the downforce aids are creating bad racing. No, no not at all. They don't say it, but, but we definitely hear it in road racing. It, we do. We do. And this this has been my point for a long time. Like, wings are part of racing cars, and they don't ruin racing. You learn how to use them. Like, you've only got to watch an IndyCar race, a Formula 3, Formula 2 race, whatever. You can get fantastic racing with wing cars, and, the, and you know, the racing's faster and more spectacular and more to my liking. So, yeah, I think all this, you know, doing away with aero aids and all that sort of thing, it's it makes us seem like a backwater. And it doesn't do our drivers and engineers and mechanics any favours when they try to progress their career overseas. It's um, it's a, it's a real problem in that respect. James, it's interesting that um, you know I've I've not been to much speedway. That was about the fourth or fifth time I've been to speedway, mm-hmm. and I was more involved than I'd ever been before. My involvement was merely talking to the people in it. But the thing that was a standout to me was the way in which these wings are hydraulically moved. Now, in the early 1970s... Well, that's a movable aerodynamic device, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Which, which and, we uh, upon in and it was uh, a couple... Yes, and it was a, a couple of Lotus 49s at the Spanish Grand Prix 
72, 73, something like that. Both Graham Hill and I think Jochen Rint, both their cars, the wings fell over and the FIA reacted and moving wings were banned. Yep. Jack Brabham, Ferrari, a number of teams had all tried them. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, one of the most famous was, of course, the Chaparrels on their sports cars. Which, which which never had a failure, by the way. No, no, true. Yeah. Jim Hall was at a different, went to a different engineering school to Colin Chapman, I, I think so, yes. Um, yes. The interesting thing, of course, is that, you know, the, the banning of, of any moving aerodynamic device went that much further when when the Brabham Alphas were race Gordon Murray's design, when uh, uh, the Chaparral had the Sucker car, the 2J, which Jackie Stewart drove, it was a very different era. And, of course, sprint cars have retained it. So they're a real outlier in the world of motor racing where they've got these moving wings. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, um, yeah, it, it, adds, it adds an element of interest and excitement to the race, I think. You can... It's quite visible where the driver's operating his wing and what he's trying to achieve by doing that. So, yeah, I, I applaud it. I think it's uh, it's an interesting aspect of the sport. It, it certainly doesn't doesn't seem to have created any undesirable side effects, that's for sure. No, maybe if we could just talk about, I didn't see Mount Gambia. I, was, I saw you at Avalon oh, yeah. and uh, took that in and I, I hadn't realised how much... Uh, James McFadden was uh, rather destroyed by only finishing third at Avalon. Right. And then he bounced back at Mount Gambier and then, of course, uh, won that uh, A main for the uh, the night two yeah. on the Sunday evening very early. Demonstrably, uh, you know, wonderful guy. He seems to be well on top of his game. Uh, he, he competes in World of Outlaws yep. touring with his wife and uh, child in a motorhome. Yep. And he would be one of the dynamic young men in, in uh, sprint cars, certainly in Australia, but also from Australia. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, he, he was, it was a very short program that they put together. So there was pressure on to uh, to do well. So, uh, he, and, you know, the, the stated aim of the whole exercise was to win the Classic. So, um, yeah, you, you've got your back to the wall for the whole time you're here, you know, just just on that basis. Yeah, Avalon was such a rough track on the on the Wednesday night due to the incredible amount of rain that they'd had. There wasn't much that they could do about the track or any of the competitors could really do to move forward. You know, you had to be well towards the front to be able to make much progress in that field on that track. So um, when they come to Mount Gambier, it was, it was a much, much nicer track. Um, but it was still, you know, 70 cars entered and uh, they had to get through two rounds of heats, which has become a bit of a novelty over the past year or so with the lack of shortage of tyres available. So most most meetings have been running a single round of heats, whereas this was the first time I can remember being back at two rounds of heats for a long time. And, yeah, and the track was in beautiful condition. It was... Um, they re-rolled it after the first round of heats. Uh, this felt the feeling was that the track was a bit wide and it was a bit patchy. It had the grip was quite patchy um, across the surface around different parts of the track. So they they did a did a full. They just ripped the surface and, and re-prepared it. And from then on, it was a fabulous racetrack. Yeah, and then they got down to two B mains and had quite a few crashes, quite a, quite a lot of damage. Um, and it was turning into a late night 
and there were people who were dead keen to get on the road to Warrnambool. So a couple of the competitors towards the back of the B mains just packed up and headed for Warrnambool. But um, the you know the two B mains that they did have, and then the A main were quite they're quite good races. Um, certainly the Sheldon Hordenchild had been tipped over in his second heat, and so he ended up in a B main and. Um, his performance in that B main was spectacular. It was just never in doubt that wherever you started him in that field, he was going to win it. So um, that was pretty impressive to watch. But um, overall, on the night, James McFadden had so much speed on the field; it was it was incredible. So come the A main, he he basically drove away from them every time they they had a restart or whatever, and. Um, yeah, had quite a gap by the time they eventually finished the race, and that was. Uh, Jock Goodyear looked pretty good over over longer distances, but because there were so many crashes and that, he wasn't getting much of a run. Uh, and James Reveals been having a mega year really, but he wasn't able to touch either of the guys in front of him. So uh, it was almost a bit dispiriting heading to the classic to think if James is going to dominate like that but uh, as always in Speedway you turn up there and it's a whole new game so the classic turned out to be you know, one of the one of the better events that I can remember it's a fantastic weekend I should mention that on Inside Speedway this week, Mm -hmm. we have an interview with Brock Hallett, and uh, we went into a bit of detail about uh, the build-up to the last corner pass to take the victory. But getting back to the engineering side of things, and when we're talking about dirt in Nashville, you've got a a huge difference there. But when we see things like on the Gen 3, talking about not having adjustable sway bars, not having some of the driver aids that, you know, you've been so familiar with over the years, where do you think this is the direction that is going to benefit the sport? Or is this going to be a a direction that's going to take them down, uh, you know, an even more difficult path? Unfortunately, and I've been fairly vocal about all all of this, I'm in the latter camp. I think it's definitely the wrong direction. Um, they've been selling this this thing for a long time now. I started in V8 supercars in 2001, and the, the cars now are drastically dumbed down from the, the cars I started on. Um, and I can't, I can't for the life of me work out why anyone wants to go backwards. Um, as I said, you know, the, yeah, there's a lot of decisions get made around V8 supercars that are, um, yeah, they're, they're a bit odd. They're a bit bits of outliers, things like not not having a diff in them, running a spool. Um, so, you know, countless, countless hours and dollars and everything gets thrown at them just trying to overcome the fact that they don't have a diff. Um then they have to be driven in a particular way to get around that problem, etc., uh, etc. Et but yeah, and the the number of sensors that you're allowed to run now compared to what we were able to run in 2001, you know, we were, we were limited by the budget only in 2001. Now everything's been done down, turned back, frequencies have been dropped off. Yeah, you know, it's, it's got to the point where you've got people like um, 
Tim Blanchard talking about running a team with part-time engineers. Um, I can't see that, you know, like, where do you get part-time engineers? Like, what are they going to do with the rest of their time? Or, um, you know, how do they get the time off from their, their other job? You know, it's, 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 uh, just seems a ridiculous notion. And, and, and um, I can't see that it's uh, in any way benefits anyone except maybe the, the, the team owner. It's certainly not a, not a benefit to the spectator or the driver or the engineer himself or anyone that you would obviously think should be benefiting. Yeah, it's interesting because the BTCC mm-hmm. will have, as an example of a road racing sense, has a handful of people who turn up on the race weekend and they crew the car, they do the engineering, mm-hmm. and you might have one or two full-time mechanics in the team workshop for a, a two, three-car team. You see with IndyCar a number of years ago towards the merger of IndyCar and Car, yep. where they condensed their season right down to, it was almost a four-month season. Mm, yeah, Teams were only bringing the people in for four months. Mm-hmm. Now, that had advantages on one hand and disadvantages on the other yeah, hand. absolutely. So it, it's one of those interesting situations that as supercars have tried, and this gets back to perhaps where we were in the discussion mm-hmm. about three days of wanting you to watch TV and getting revenue yeah. out of things because of how many hours you can spend as opposed to saying you're going to get two hours of unbelievable action uh-huh. and we're going to get the full dollar out of you. But, you know, this is, this is I think, where the mindset is and one of the real difficulties of it, James. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think in that respect, Speedway's got the upper hand. You know, they definitely deliver a really good package. And, like, as a family man, if you're going to go to an event... You know, you get wall-to-wall racing. You get you get a result on the night. You you know, it's all and it's all packaged up and it's right there in front of you. It's nice. Whereas, um, like you say, for, to run a three-day event, you've got you might run three races and then you've got to add up points or whatever to find out who's won it. Um, it's it's a bit of it's a harder sell, isn't it? So, yeah. I, I think you're right. That's not to say Speedway doesn't have problems. Oh, no. no they've got 40,000 divisions. Every time someone gets upset with the uh, series they're running, mm-hmm. they will literally put a wing on or take a wing yep. off and start a new division. Yep. The real problem, though, is that the promoters are still trying to make their money off the back gate mm-hmm. rather than trying to make sure that the grandstand's full. Yeah, okay. Well... Yeah, that's clearly the wrong way to look at it, isn't it? It's um, you're never going to get far if you're charging the people that are providing the show to provide the show. To an extent, that's that's the way it is in motorsport worldwide. But you've got to do what you can to look after the competitor to keep them coming back. And and you know, getting back to what we were talking about earlier, like the the biggest expense to a professional motorsport team is is the crew costs, the travel, the accommodation, the wages of the crew. Yeah, and there's certainly a, a lot of things that V8 supercars could be doing to reduce those costs that they're just ignoring or not paying much attention to or whatever's going on. But yeah, I think there's there are some there's certainly some 
better ways to do things than what they're currently doing it, put it that way. James, and of course, one of the interesting things is that it's not just a question of retaining staff. Supercars has a major problem in trying to get that staff because there is a critical shortage of trained professional people around uh, supercars and the development series and Porsche. Yeah, absolutely. There is just a shortage of people who are willing to do it. It's a fascinating thing. James, thank you very much for joining us on Inside Supercars. I know we'll see you again at a track very soon. Your 23 program is all locked up as yet or? Uh, no, I've got I've got certain events and, and certain series locked down. Um, I'll be doing Super 2 this year, uh, but there's, there's still room to talk. So, yeah, if anyone wants a race engineer, give us a bell. Okay, and I know that we'll uh, catch up at a, an historic meeting or two when you're uh, working with Grant Dorman and, and Peter Dorman and the uh, wonderful Shrike that they run. Absolutely, yes. Um, but all the very best for your year ahead. And uh, look forward to catching up with the racetrack at the EU. Okay, thanks, Tony. Thanks, Craig. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next time for more. Or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. You love supercars and keeping up to speed sometimes means hitting the rev limiter? Welcome to the Gates Rev Limiter Podcast. After each round, we unpack what happened. Join Andrew Clark. Would have paused a fraction and got it right, and they probably still would have won the race. I mean, and yours truly, Neville Wilkinson. These are the heady days when Ford was spending mega bucks for all the action, all the controversy, and sometimes a little emotion. The Gates Rev Limited Supercars Podcast. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, or where you listen to them. <laughs>